Three Amazon sellers. Three Amazon sellers. Entertaining conversation with some of the brightest minds in online business. This is the one-stop shop to start or scale your business further than you could ever imagine. Ever imagine. Welcome to the Buy Box Bandits Podcast. Welcome back to the Buy Box Bandits. Today we have another awesome guest, probably the largest seller we've had on yet, and we're very excited to hear all about his operation. Mike Beckham, the uh, co-founder of Simple Modern, which you guys should Google to get a sense of what it, he has going on. But Mike, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be with you. Absolutely. So if I'm not mistaken, your brand now does, like you were telling us prior, three different sections, direct-to-consumer, retail presence, as well as Amazon. Um, yeah. So you got, want to give us a little bit of the background on the whole operation you got going on right now? Sure. Like I'll give you guys a little bit of the genesis. So we started, we launched as an Amazon brand. Um, I Actually, I'll give you guys even a little bit more context. So 2009, I was actually in the nonprofit world. I have a younger brother. He'd been kind of involved in the affiliate marketing space and had done really well, but it was totally the wild west. I mean, it was like all kinds of shady stuff. You know, Facebook and Google didn't really have any kind of regulation. And so he, he had done pretty well, but he was like, man, this place, I, I want to build a real business. And he approached me and said, hey, would you be willing to do this with me? We had this idea, this kind of auction website idea. And I said, sure, you know, like this would be a side project. It'll be fun. We recruited a few guys, started a company. Um, it's called Quibids. It was like an auction website. In uh, October 2009, by November 2010, we had our first million dollar revenue day. So all of a sudden, I'm like fully sucked into, you know, like the e-commerce world um, and eventually got to the point where I was like, OK, I'm working two jobs. We've got our first you know, child on the way. Like I got to make a call. And so moved over to the business world and worked with my brother for several years. We launched some more kind of direct to consumer e-commerce uh, companies. And really from like 2010 to 2015, what became obvious was like Amazon was just consolidating like crazy. Like they were really just dominating the market. And we started to become aware of the way we became aware was actually through uh, like looking at businesses to buy that there were just some people doing crazy numbers, white labeling on Amazon. And so we started looking at the space and originally we thought we might buy a business or two. And then we thought, you know, I think we can do this. We have all the skills. And so help my brother start a brand uh, that did like bedding sheets, pillows, stuff like that. In fact, the number one selling pillow on Amazon, it's like a top hundred ASIN for them in the entire side or something. Uh, it's called the Beckham Hotel Collection pillow. It's an awesome pillow. Uh, we don't own it anymore, but that's uh, a weird kind of vestigial part of my career. Anyway, and then a couple of guys that I've worked with said, hey, would you be interested in starting, you know, kind of a side business with us on Amazon? So we started on Amazon. We didn't know uh, what product we wanted to sell. We just kind of felt like there was a real opportunity there. We loved working with each other, kind of the culture of working with each other. We wanted to be some about generosity. So we knew kind of these like tentpole kind of ideas and we felt like we'll figure out product. So this is like 2015. We didn't figure out that we wanted to do hydration until the beginning of 2016. That's when we sold our first unit. And from that point on, we just kind of grew like a weed on Amazon. Um, at this point, our Amazon business is probably in like the 4 million units a year, um, kind of ballpark. So we're, we're a, a pretty big seller there. And, and probably in terms of unit volume, we're the biggest in our category. Uh, but 
launching a consumer brand is super difficult. And we were actually launching it in a space that's like really competitive. There's Yeti, there's Corksicle, there's Hydroflask, there's all these really good brands that have been there first. And none of them were really prioritizing Amazon. And a bunch of them didn't seem to include into the fact that these water bottles could be kind of like an accessory. Like, yeah, it has kind of a functional purpose, but also like how it looks, people really care about that. And we took advantage of that. I mean, that's kind of like custom made for e-commerce. Uh, and we had a lot of like, you know, just kind of the tactical blocking and tackling. Like we knew how to, we knew how to really execute on an e-commerce idea, how to make sure that the algorithm kind of smiles upon you, run the advertising, all that stuff. And so we grew like crazy on Amazon. Things that's cool about Amazon, if you're building a consumer brand, is if you're talking to people who don't know anything about you, you can always say, well, hey, you can just look us up on Amazon, you know, kind of our resumes on Amazon. We got whatever, 50,000, 100,000 five-star reviews. You can just go look. And that ended up leading to us getting into Target, uh, which has gone exceptionally well. At this point, we're the biggest supplier for Target um, and, and Sam's Club. And then, you know, this year we're going into Walmart. And so now we've got this really massive, in addition to our website, we've got this really massive like, uh, you know, wholesale and in physical retail arm of the business. Uh, in fact, it may even eventually, I think this year it might actually eclipse our, our digital side in terms, of, in terms of revenue and stuff, uh, which I didn't think would ever actually happen. So uh, we've kind of done a little bit of everything, but for sure the brand started and, and like, you know, the foundation was launching on Amazon. And when we launched on Amazon, we certainly didn't have like a brand name or anything we were leveraging it was really like more the opportunity and uh, knowing how to play the game. Yeah. And one thing, like, interestingly enough, a lot of people just in general really trip over the name of their product or their brand or whatever. And it, it's clear that you kind of leverage based off Amazon already having the traffic and the customer trust. If the product was good, people reviewed it, it would eventually become something that maybe they would want to reorder and everything like that. Um, walk me through and just our viewers in general, what the like processes were in terms of getting the product actually made. Cause I, I saw you tweeted the other day that you guys are planning on starting to manufacture stateside. Um, yeah. yeah. Kind of interesting for people that want to get into PL. For sure. So, I mean, it all depends on what you're trying to sell, uh, in, in our main category, which is like, uh, stainless steel, vacuum insulated drinkware. Uh, not many people know this, but it's something like 96% of it's made in this one region of China, like in this like 200 mile radius or something. And so uh, it's not that it's like that special. It's just that it kind of what happens is an industry kind of kind of starts somewhere and then they develop the whole ecosystem around it, the tooling. And, you know, like there's this process called electrolysis where they, they polish the steel. There's all these like, you know, kind of cottage specialties that kind of spring up. And so with stainless steel drinkware right now, nobody's done it. Nobody's really manufactured it at scale. Uh, India is doing a little bit of it, but nobody really outside of China. Uh, we've also gotten to plastics and we're really interested in this idea of doing some or uh, all of our manufacturing someday. I think uh, it'll be difficult to do all of it, but doing a, a significant portion of it. And what we found is plastics are actually perfect because if you use injection molding, I didn't really know anything about this, but injection molding is how you make most plastics. And it's basically just like a machine that melts plastic pellets into a liquid and it shoots it into a mold and then it drops out what you've got. And so, uh, you know, the process for making like stainless steel bottles is super intricate and like, uh, you know, has like a hundred steps. 
But the process for making a plastic bottle is like you press a button, it pushes it into this little thing and then it, it pops it out like a balloon and like, boom, you're done. So we're going we're gonna to start with plastics here because that's imminently more achievable uh, than, than stainless steel. And then eventually we're going to try and figure out, hey, can we do powder coating? Can we do a bunch of this? Other, can we make lids? Can we do a bunch of this other stuff here? So it's baby steps right now, but we're pretty fired up. We've got um, some commitments uh, from mass retailers around plastics. So we're not like skydiving without a parachute necessarily, although we, we kind of have to make it work because we got, we got units to deliver. Um, but, you know, finding, finding a product obviously is really the key on Amazon. And, you know, even when I launched uh, Simple Modern with my co-founders a few years ago to now, is just a totally different world. I mean, it's just so much more competitive and so much more saturated in the marketplace than it's ever been. So you really do have to uh, have to kind of either pick a vertical that's new and growing, which that's one angle that I might suggest to people. If you're talking practically, like Google Trends um, is a good example of this. Amazon search uh, data, I don't know if you guys have played with that, where you can look at search placement and their algorithm and, and like finding terms that are still not huge, but are growing really rapidly. If I was starting again, that's probably where I would start is I'd say like, okay, I'm going to try and identify some trends early on. Uh, and then I'm going to look for the holes where like, you know, there's, there's a trend, it's growing really fast. Somebody hasn't taken this to Amazon yet. Um, or where I can just offer a different value proposition, right? For us, it was kind of a combination of people weren't really into ornamentation uh, with water bottles and it was that the, everybody who was selling these was selling them at like premium price points. And we were like, well, what if we did premium quality, but we did it at a more affordable kind of price point. And that really worked for us. Nobody was really doing that uh, on Amazon. So we had all kinds of ideas, man. We, there's this list that exists of like 50 ideas that we came up with and like 45 of them are just terrible. You know, you just look back at it and you're like, it's like compost bins and stuff. I mean, maybe it would have worked, but I look back and I'm like, man, I'm so glad we didn't try a bunch of this stuff. Um, we probably picked the best possible one on the list, but, uh, but there's always, you know, there's always opportunities. You, you find kind of a product vertical or verticals. That's probably the way, best way to do it is you find three or four possibilities and then you go out there and you kind of try and look at manufacturers and, you know, where can we get quality product? There's a couple of hacks there that have been helpful to me. One is um, it's possible to reverse engineer where people's shipments are coming from. So you might say, hey, I really want to be in this vertical. I really like how so-and-so brand is doing it. There's, there's ways to look at shipment records and often find out, you know, who are they working with overseas? And, you know, that's a great, I mean, it's just a great, you know, kind of trick to, to find the quality manufacturers. Um, we did a lot of uh, looking at review scraping. We would scrape reviews on Amazon, uh, and we would use that as a proxy for volume. So we we would would look at listings, and we didn't just look at the total number of reviews, but we'd look at the velocity of reviews coming in to try and look at, you know, how how many units are they realistically moving a day? Uh, and then we went through the sample process, and we were just lucky. I think honestly, we found the manufacturer that we've done. Oh, I don't know, 90 something percent of our volume with we found right off the bat and they've really grown with us and been an, a tremendous partner for us. Uh, they've been really interested in developing new products with us. They've, they've helped to finance our growth and, you know, they've really leaned in. And so uh, finding the right 
factory or, or manufacturing partner to work with is a lot of the battle. So I would say it's kind of like, first and foremost, you got to kind of figure out what's the right vertical where there's room for your value proposition and there's volume enough to make it worthwhile. And then you got to find a manufacturer that can really deliver at the quality level you need to have um, and will really partner with you. Um, and once we found those things, it was kind of, we were off with the races, man. Wow. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just dropping all kinds of stuff here. Sorry. So considering our audience is, is mostly in the OA and, and retail arbitrage space with a, a sure. wholesalers scattered, scattered in there, um, what was your strategy in terms of getting the traction on Amazon, increasing sales, getting that sales rank down? What sort of, what sort of strategies did you implement? Well, you know, we originally kind of cut our teeth on Amazon at the end of whatever you'd call the first era. Amazon's had kind of these eras where they had different approaches to reviews. And by the end of the first era, I don't even, I mean, most of the people listening to this probably just have, you know, we're not around the ecosystem. This would have been like 2015, 2016. Um, it was starting to become a thing to launch a business on Amazon, either white label or, you know, retail arbitrage kind of thing. And uh, they were allowing you, it, they were allowing you if you were launching a product to just give away lots of product to, and you could both spike the sales algorithm and you could generate just tons of reviews. It's more or less paid reviews. And then in 16, they kind of shut that down. So, you know, the advantage of when you're doing retail arbitrage it's, it's just a little bit of a different skill set because when you're trying to start a product that doesn't have kind of a review profile or a demand profile, it takes, you know, really it's like, hey, can we generate credibility through reviews? And can we get this, you know, can we, can we get this unburied in, in the relevant search terms? Um, and, and there's all kinds of tactics you can use when you're in that situation. I mean, one of them sometimes is you really want to know like, hey, what are the search terms where this thing could surface? And then you want to do deliberate things. And maybe you don't go after all of them at once, but you're like, we're going to go hard after this one of the top five. And then we're going to go after the second and we're going to go after the third. Anyway, if you're, but when you're, you're trying to do the retail arbitrage, it's totally a different deal. You know, like how do I win the buy, the buy box? And how do I take something that, where there's already established demand, but I, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be the one that's actually getting that demand. Um, so my, m most of my experience is on this side where it's like, Hey, Nobody knows about this thing, but I think if I can get a good review, you know, if I can get the customer feedback on the product where people know how good it is and I can get it in front of them, it's going to convert. So once Amazon kind of changed its review policy, uh, you had to get more creative. It was, it was pretty easy at first. You just, you just say, hey, we're going to budget $50,000 and more or less giveaways, and, and that's going to get us, get us up there and get those reviews. Uh, you know, some people went kind of gray hat where they, they, you know, they kind of tried to find all the ways to do the same thing, um, but you're kind of violating the spirit of the law. Uh, and then as they kind of pushed the envelope on that and Amazon allowed it, you got what happened in China where you just got, you know, just kind of egregious abuse. For, for people like us, what it was is developing our website, developing an email list, um, and anytime we did a product launch, some combination of telling everybody in our kind of friends and family and our email list, like, hey, we're launching this product. We'd really like you to buy it from Amazon and really making concerted like two, three day pushes on that channel. 
um, to really, and you know, as an aside, for a lot of products, like if your price point is 50, 60, you know, 100, $200, stuff like that, selling it direct to consumer on your website can be more profitable than selling it on Amazon. But for us, at our price points, we make just as much money selling it on Amazon as we do selling it direct to consumer. So we're able to treat those channels fairly interchangeably. It's, it's we don't, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of heartburn about using our email list to push people towards um, Amazon. So, you know, it's kind of the, the typical stuff. I, I, we used to use ads a lot. I've kind of soured a little bit on ads. Uh, at one point, ads were probably 8% to 10% of our retail sales dollars. And now they're probably 1%. Um, we use them a lot more sparingly. And, and generally, like what I would tell people is Amazon's basically this massive machine that's built around uh, doing one thing exceptionally well, and that is finding arbitrage and surfacing it to the customer. So, you know, you drop price and you are going to get eyeballs, you know. Now, when you drop price and you run your stuff out of stock, that's not helpful. And when you lose, you know, you, you've got to kind of control the losses when you drop price, I'll, get, I'll tell you guys a crazy story from just the other day. So we've got these um, uh, insulated can coolers, right? Like they have them for white claws and then for regular cans, whatever. And uh, it sold pretty well, but we're more like, I don't know, maybe fifth or sixth in that category. And, you know, my perspective was, hey, I, I think this is a category we should be first in. We're kind of first in all these other insulated drink for categories. I think, you know, we just have never kind of gotten the placement that we wanted. And so usually they retail for something crazy, like not, not crazy, like a really good deal, but like, I don't know, $13.99, $14.99. It's really affordable. But I said, what would happen if we just for a day, you know, we dropped price to like $6.99? Like, let's just kind of get the paddles out and let's just pop it all the way up and let's just see what happens. Um, and we did it and we were trying to keep a good grip on what was going on. It's a little bit more a one piece seller now. So you don't get the dash, you don't get like the kind of the real time data quite the same way as marketplace. Anyway, we sold 7,000 in a day in like 24 hours. It was like, okay, well, that, uh, <laughs> that was maybe not, maybe we didn't need to do quite that, but it's just a good example. It's like the moment, like Amazon will give you a traffic, like page views and stuff when you're a direct seller. And it's like our, you know, our traffic was up like whatever, like, I don't know, 150X or something, you know, year over year for that day. Just because when you drop price, like they, they do, their algorithm is built around surfacing that for people, whether it's on their deals page or whatever else. So for sure, that's the lever usually that you use is, is there a way to drop price and then kind of pop back up where you, you pay to kind of get the, 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 the buy box, you pay to get the placement, and then you gradually kind of get to more of a sustainable price that you can hold. Um, and, and so I, I would, my, my advice is that that's probably the best way to do it that I've seen and, and probably much more efficient than ads. Absolutely. Kind of uh, switching gears here. I, we're very curious in terms of like, as you've grown over the years, did you guys take, or I don't even know if you're allowed to speak on this, but did you guys just use all your own capital or were you leveraging? Yeah, that? no, we're, we're internally uh, owned guys. So like uh, I bootstrapped it with my own money and I'll just tell you this, uh, you know, di there's different ways to play the game. It depends on like kind of the business you're trying to build, but I don't think there's a better job that you can have than a company that you, uh, that's internally owned. 
um, that's at scale. It's just an amazing experience because at this point, now that we're really generating, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty profitable at this point. And we've got this real kind of internal commitment of like, hey, we want to, we actually want to give a lot of money away to charity. We want to pay our people really well. We're going to bring in lunch for everybody every day. We're going to, you know, we're just going to be generous in general. Like we're, we're not going to nickel and dime people like our suppliers. Like, and if I had outside investors, a lot of the things that we do, I think, uh, would be criticized by an external investor because they would say, well, wait a second, you guys could be making more money and I want to get my return. But instead, because we don't have to deal with that, we can just really run the business the way that we think is best. Um, it's definitely more of a grind. I mean, I think I mentioned, you know, Yeti is kind of an adjacent, I don't know how much they're a competitor, but they're kind of an adjacent brand and they're a $7 billion company. And so, you know, we're going up against people that are really freaking big and really capitalized. And uh, there's been a lot of our kind of life cycle where I felt like, man, we are really undercapitalized compared to the people that we're going up against. So that's the downside is like, you know, I probably took five years off my life doing it, you know, bootstrapping businesses. But the flip side of that is now that we've actually achieved kind of you know, we've kind of broken through and gotten to escape velocity or whatever, like, uh, man, it's, it's a great feeling. And so and I've been able to be, you know, hopefully this is what you hear from all of our employees that we're really generous with them. And we have that there's quite a few people that have equity in the company. And um, that's, that's just generally kind of a goal for us. Of how, how do we, since we have the ability to, how are we going to be as generous with this thing as we can? So given the scale that you guys have, have gotten to, what is your day-to-day -day look like? What sort of tasks are you handling Monday to Friday on a daily basis? Well, so one of the hardest parts about, uh, I'll, I'll give you the top line. Top line, we're about 110 million revenue company. We sell about 11 million units a year. So, you know, pretty, pretty large scale at this point, global scale, I guess you could say. Um, and one of the hardest parts about like actually growing a company like that is that your role changes several times if you're the CEO. So like the earliest days, I heard this analogy once and I loved it. You know, like the earliest days, it's like, it, we're gonna use a sports analogy. You're a player, right? Like you're the quarterback. If you're not throwing touchdown passes, like you're gonna lose, like it's not gonna work, right? And then you start to have a little bit of success and you're able to hire a few team members and now it's like, you're, you're kind of like a player coach. Like you still need to be on the field. You still need to be like producing, but you've got help. And so you're, you're kind of straddling this like, hey, I, I need to be doing things. So like, I may, like, for example, I'm just a player. Like I own all advertising. I own, you know, all the analytics. I own, you know, these aspects of product development. I've got like seven hats I wear. As you go to a player coach, maybe you have a few less hats, but you're also executing and your coaching, right? Which is hard. It's a really, it's, it, there's all this tension because you, you see all these things that you want to get to, but you've got to give all this time to people that you're trying to coach. Um, and you see, you see things that you could do better, but you, you coach people to do them so that you can abstract. So that's the kind of tension there. And then there's this jump where you're really not a player coach anymore, but you're a coach. And that's really hard uh, for guys like us and really anybody who's built something from zero part of the way you get from zero to something significant is that you're, you're a grinder. Like, you know how to execute, you know how to block, do the blocking and tackling. And then there's this point where you're at a scale enough where it's like, Hey, 
you doing blocking and tackling most of the time is more of a hindrance than a help because the organization needs to scale and it can't scale if everything's running through you and if you're not coaching people and kind of growing the base. Um, and so it's real disorienting for people. Like I hear from people all the time when they're in the player coach stage, man, if I just had a little bit of time to breathe and think, right. But I've just, there's so much like I'm doing and people are tugging on me. And then what's funny is they get to the coach stage and it's like, man, what am I doing? You know, like, I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything because all of a sudden, you know, it's easy whenever you're doing a lot of the tactical to be like, yeah, knock that out, did that, accomplish that. Okay. I feel pretty good about the day. When you become a coach, most of like most of what you're doing for your organizations, you're actually helping talk people through things. And so, like, you know, there'd be weeks, uh, you know, I think it was about a year ago, year and a half ago that I started to feel like I was in this kind of role with our company where I was just like, man, I don't I don't know what I accomplished this week. I had a lot of conversations, you know, I think they were good. I think I helped people. But um, and, and even there's some layers past that, like you could even say after coach, you go to general manager and then your commissioner or whatever. And each of those is different as well. Um, but for sure, I think the first three are the most uh, instructive for, for people like the people listening to this podcast, that you got to be a player. And if you don't want to do the work, you know, then don't do this. You'll lose. You know, you've got to be ready to get in there. Like, I don't know how many nights I've been up till 2 a.m. looking at something on Amazon and trying to figure out, you know, an edge. Like, that's just how it works. And you've got to, you've got to love that. And you've got to be willing to do that grinding. And then once you get good at that, you have to start to let go of it. And you have to start to coach and, and teach other people. Um, and that's a difficult transition as well. So at this point, I'm kind of through that loop. You know, now... Our organization's like about 60 full-time people. Um, our Amazon team, we have, we have four full-time people that just handle our Amazon business. And then there's probably another three or four that contribute to it. Plus we have an entire creative department. We have an entire product dev. We have an entire logistics. So, you know, just managing the front end of Amazon, we now have four people doing that, which is like a far cry from, you know, when we first started where we had me and two co-founders and we're doing absolutely everything from sourcing the product to moving it to whatever else. Um, but I, I've enjoyed every stage for sure. You know, I think, I think the early, like I always love the early days and like what it feels like to actually just be doing it yourself and, and getting the W's all the way to now. Like I really get to help other people win, you know, which is a lot of fun and help other people. I mean, it's part of the reason I like to do podcasts like this is it's like, man, it's fun to help other people that have that drive and that willingness to work, help them to be successful. I mean, both you guys, what you've done in the last year is a good example of that. I love it. I love it when people are, have that kind of growth mindset and want to get in there and, and challenge themselves. Absolutely. We uh, really appreciate it too. In terms of like, there's a lot of different stuff going on. Like I was looking in the Facebook ads library, obviously Amazon advertising, all that kind of stuff. Is everything in-house? Do you guys have any agencies you work with? Yeah, so far we we haven't really used agencies for anything other than video. Um, and what was interesting about us is that the way that we entered the market, we were in this market where a lot of people were going with kind of a premium price point where there's there's pretty fat margins. And the game they were kind of playing is, you know, you're you're selling it mostly in brick and mortar and 
your your margins are pretty thick because they kind of have to be to, to sell like specialty retail or something. And we felt like that, you know, if, if Hydroflask is selling this at $50, can we sell it at 25? So the, the good and the bad of that is that if uh, you try to run a marketing driven approach to growth, uh, it's going to be hard or fail. Or if it's going to be like paid acquisition is a major channel for you, like there's just there's just not enough profit dollars, right? You can't run the CPAs that it requires, and even on Amazon ads, which I've spent you know I don't know a thousand hours on Amazon ads, I probably know about as much of it about it as you can, and even then, like hey, if you're blending out to a twenty A cost or, or you know I'm sorry, uh, yeah, twenty A cost or like a, a four ROAS or something like. You're doing pretty good. That's generally pretty good. And if your margins are thirty percent, you just can't you can't scale very much doing that. And so instead, we really kind of picked this line where it's like, hey, we're just not doing that much advertising. You know, we're putting it in the product, we're putting it in price, and so we'll do some Facebook ads. But I mean, like, I don't know for the scale of our company, it's like 0. 0.00 something percent of our revenue, um, just because. That's just not the best way for us to grow. For us, the best way to grow was like, find a great value proposition. Don't spend a bunch of money trying to tell people about it. Just make it inherently obvious that this is great and grow that way, you know? Uh, and and there, it's, it's one way to approach it. Uh, it's not the only way, but in general, it's, I, I've been a big fan of it. Like it's, it's nice when you're not feeling like you're constantly running the marketing hamster wheel, you know? Amazon's not as bad with this because you're not having to come up with new creative all the time. But man, when you're doing Facebook and it's like, you got, you got to have that next creative that hits or the traffic dries up or, you know, they push like an update like iOS 14 and then all of a sudden your CPAs go wonky and, and it's a problem. So anyway, that's been our approach. And, and as a result, we just haven't had to put that much kind of uh, mental energy towards uh, advertising or creatives. It's been more towards great products, great ornamentations, and then, you know, finding ways to, to get partners like Amazon or Target or whatever to move a bunch of them. And our big thing was always like that our best marketing strategy was bottles and hands. So when somebody gets one of our bottles, they inherently are like, this is great. I like it. I want to buy more. It's like a little billboard. They take it around with them. It has a logo and stuff on it. And so we just kind of optimize for that over you know, influencers or any of the other things that you can do to try and get your name out there. Now we did have a couple of organic things out, you know, like there's this girl Tinks on uh, TikTok who's one of the, right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is your bottles she like always holds it. Yeah, Tinks is Tinks is awesome, man. We didn't even know her when she started when she did her first <laughs> super viral uh, kind of video about us, but uh, it's been awesome working with Tinks and uh, and she's definitely helped the business and hopefully we've helped her to, to grow as well. And, uh, so there's been some of that stuff, but it's all, it's always been like organic, you know, kind of in nature. It's not been like, you know, transactional, we're going to pay you this much to, to pump our product or any of that stuff. Absolutely. So this is going to be a bit of a cliche question, but if you had to go back to day one, would you change anything? Would you do anything different or would you do the same exact stuff? You know, it's funny because I think when it goes as well as it's gone for us, you, you probably shouldn't ever play the counterfactual kind of yeah. game because it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I had, it's funny. I was, I was talking to some people uh, at the company. It's, it's a kind of a similar version. Your question is a little bit different, 
but it's like, if you let me go back in time 15 years, right? Like college, college at 20s, right? And you're like, okay, you know exactly how your life can play out if you make these decisions and you know you love it. Would I have the discipline to make the exact same decisions, you know, or would I just just go off script just to see what happens? You know, because it's like, so I, it's kind of one of those questions. It's like, there's definitely things that we could have done differently. And there's decisions that we made that I think had unintended bad consequences for us. Anytime you build something that gets to scale, you get some stuff baked in your foundation where you're like, man, I don't think we should have done that. But <laughs> you, you're not able to see the other side of it, right? You're not able to see, and this is the thing that's so dangerous about counterfactuals is you can always imagine, well, if instead of doing that thing there, we had launched this product, or if instead of saying yes to that, or instead of pricing it at this, we priced it at that, you can play that game, but it's all a hypothetical of like how things would have gone, right? And so I try not to do that too much. Uh, and I, I'm more trying to kind of find principles of like, hey, when have we made better decisions? When have we made worse decisions? And what's been true about how we were thinking? So I'll give you guys an example. We, we had just had tremendous success in hydration. And we're like, okay, what's the next growth category? And backpacks is just it's a really big category on amazon and and we internally were kind of like you know why can't we do the same thing in backpacks um we think we make a good backpack we think colors could be important here you know kind of the same play um there's tons of volume we're gonna go after this and maybe even the premise wasn't a bad one but I don't think we really did our due diligence. I mean, one of the things we didn't do is we just didn't talk to our customers of like, hey, is this the thing you really want to buy from us? And uh, so we just kind of charged into backpacks head first and it just didn't go very well for us. I mean, like at this point, I think we found some things that work, especially with kids' backpacks. But man, the first year or two, it was really just the equivalent of us kind of banging our head against the wall. And then COVID hit and nobody was buying a backpack. So that was... Obviously, like that's just like kind of the timing that you don't know about. But I, I do think we got we got a little bit of hubris of like, hey, we've got this figured out and a little bit of forgetting what it was that made us work in one category wasn't going to necessarily work in another category. And you, you just got to talk to your customers like the biggest mistakes I feel like we have are the, are the avoidable ones where it's like we start to think we know better than the people that we're supposed to be serving. So the counter side to that is. The next big thing we went after was kids. Our demographic is mostly females, 25 to 45. And so those are all people that are, that are you know, moms or, or could be moms at some point. And we launched into kids and it's just been amazing for us. But it makes sense, right? Like it's like we, if, you, if you're an adult and you've bought you know, a, a water bottle from us that you've loved and then you have a kid and we sell kids water bottles that you think are cute, you trust the brand, like, it's a really easy conversation to have with that customer. And so uh, the, the backpack one stands out in, in my mind, but uh, I, I'll also say this, I think making mistakes on team is, is usually worse than making mistakes on business tactics or product. Because I, I think culture ends up mattering, mattering more. And I think people issues are just harder to fix. Um, and so, although we probably made a couple of business missteps that I would do over, we, we talk about internally, like 
there's two, two ways you can kind of view mistakes or missteps. You can say like, they're just failures or you can say they're tuition. And we tend to view them as tuition, like, so yeah, we made some mistakes that, you know, in a vacuum, you'd say, don't do those, except those mistakes probably helped the team to be smarter and have probably helped make some of our subsequent things we've done better. And so, you know, maybe, maybe they were net positives, you know, whereas I think when you hire the wrong people, you get the wrong people in your organization, that's almost always just a net negative. That's, that's almost always just destructive. Uh, and so that, that probably be, uh, I don't think I, I don't think I would change much. Um, and, and most of that's because I feel like on the team side, we've made, we've made really good decisions. Absolutely. And shifting back to distribution channels, if you, God forbid you add, you only have to choose one retail direct consumer or Amazon, which one are you picking and why? Well, I, I will say this, I, I think that D to C is by far the hardest channel. Um, and, and there's no reason for me to think it will be less hard. I mean, 2020 was probably, if you were running a D to C company, it was the best year in terms of the environment that you will get for the next 10 years. And so there were some people that did exceptionally well in 2020. Um, really, if you were running a D to C brand, that was, that was your chance to shine. And uh, it's been a lot tougher uh, over the last year or two. Um, they're so different. You know, selling on Amazon and selling in mass retail, they're so different and the challenges are so different. Just to give you like an example, um, you know, we have listings that are kind of at the top of kitchen and dining or, you know, the home category on Amazon. And the top SKUs in there might do, we've got a bunch of SKUs, like we might have a hundred or ASINs in one of those listings. Um, so there's a lot of them. And let's say that listing does a couple thousand units a day, right? Like, so that's significant. Like being able to move whatever that is, you know, five, six, 700,000 units a year, um, that's, that's awesome. But you do it over a hundred ASINs and you have to have inventory of each and there's a lot of stuff. Um, we, we have like a, a kid's item that we placed in, in Walmart. It got to 3,600 stores and it was selling 5,000 a week. So just that one item might sell like 260,000 units. So it's like such a different game, right? Like one is you can do pretty big volume and, and maybe you can make more nominal profit dollars per sale, but there's a lot more complexity. There's a lot more ASINs, a lot more to manage. And then kind of physical retail, especially mass retail, like with Walmart or Target or some of these guys is you can just drive an amazing amount of volume through one thing. And so the complexity of like manufacturing and a bunch of that stuff gets a lot less. Um, but there is much more of a focus on efficiency and you really have to get the right things on the shelf. You get, you get spots on the shelf, you have to get the right thing. So I, I wouldn't, I, I, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you other than I think what you're going to see over the next five years is it's all going to kind of blend together. You know, Amazon, Target, Walmart, they all want to be omni-channel. And so Amazon's trying to figure out how to get into physical retail more and more. Whole Foods is an example, but, you know, I would bet that you see a lot more from Amazon, more stores, more ways to try and press into physical. You're going to see Walmart and Target try and find more ways to press into digital, you know. Um, and, okay. All, right. All right, Mike, thanks a lot for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can everyone find you both on Twitter and then your companies uh, if they're interested in anything? 
Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Mike Beckham SM, and you can you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. If you want to look at Simple Modern's products, you can find us at SimpleModern.com, Amazon, Target, Sam's Club, Walmart, just about just about anywhere you shop at this point. All right, awesome. man, thank you guys, and thanks to everyone who listened to this episode. We'll see you guys in the next one.